1: right rug flooring. Hey everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.
2: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Recently, I've been producing a documentary film series each summer on Long Island on behalf of the Hamptons International Film Festival. And I'm pretty much addicted to documentary films. A good documentary film requires a mixture of four basic ingredients. A great story, a filmmaker with passion, an experienced crew, and money. Today on the show, I'll speak with two documentary filmmakers who each made controversial political films using a slightly different formula. The story was there, but without any money or experience, they had to make up that deficit with excess passion, or perhaps a better word, obsession. My first guest is Anthony Baxter. Baxter was a radio journalist for the BBC who turned to filmmaking when a unique strip of coastline near his home in northeast Scotland was threatened with development by billionaire Donald Trump. Trump had purchased a few thousand acres of land with the intent of building a golf course. Baxter's film, You've Been Trumped, documents the drama that unfolded amongst Trump, the Scottish government who supported the project, and the community of people who were deeply rooted there. I'm going to build for the people of Scotland the greatest golf course anywhere in the world. There'll be nothing like it, and it's going to be done environmentally perfect. It's just so false,
1: you know? All these people arriving, suited and booted, and yes, Mr.
3: Trump, no, Mr. Trump. It's a real mosaic of habitats. You've got everything from open sand to shrubs, to trees, to wetlands. I've received many environmental awards over the years.
2: The greatest thing I've ever done for the environment is what I'll be doing right here in Aberdeen. There are people who don't approve of this. I don't approve of bullying. Filmmaker Anthony Baxter lives in a tiny village just 50 miles south of Aberdeenshire where the film takes place. And it was Baxter's pure frustration that fueled the film.
3: The first thing was, really, I felt, look, this story is not being reported accurately in the media. In the two local newspapers were saying this is going to be a fantastic thing for the air. They were on board from the beginning. Absolutely. Right. Why do you think that is? Well, when Donald Trump arrived, the red carpet was rolled out. His private jet touched down at Aberdeen Airport. The press were invited. And they all came along and they all said, this is going to be fantastic. In a way, I think it was celebrity is coming to this little part of Scotland, and Donald Trump is going to bring with him all these jobs. And the media kind of just latched onto this as if it was going to be a, a saving thing for, for the area.
2: Who is the primary employer? What's the primary means of employment there?
3: The main employer for the area is is the oil industry, I would say. That has been the driving force of the economy in that part of the world. That's why there is only 1% unemployment, 1% in Aberdeenshire, mm-hmm. which is where, you know, Donald Trump said he was going to be building a golf course resort and and employing thousands of people. And so when I heard that was happening, when I heard that uh, this was going to be um, essentially saving the local economy, according to You Trump, thought
2: that was, was strange because it didn't need saving.
3: Well, there were two things that struck me about it. One was... You know, the economy, um, I felt, didn't need saving. The other thing was that the environmental impact of this development was going to be enormous. I mean, this was being built on a stretch of unique scientific interest, a site of special scientific interest as the highest accolade that our country can bestow to a protected site. So it's the equivalent in uh, like, in the United States of like a national seashore. Absolutely. Where you have some
2: massive tract of land that is of unique environmental uh, value. Yes. So it wasn't
3: protected land. It but. was protected. It was supposed to protect it from development. Now, what happened was nobody reported the environmental impact that this resort was going to have. And I knew, having made a documentary for the BBC, that it was going to be significant. I knew that this was a protected site, but none of the local press was saying anything about this and instead they were focusing in on the spat between Donald Trump and a, and one local resident who didn't want to sell his property and you know I felt they, the local people were being parodied and so I went up and I spoke to them
1: I usually get up about 7 and let the cat out and in this dark mornings I just nip back to bed again and turn on the TV and lie till about uh, say half past 7 get ready start my porridge. Was the first thing he to
3: you? Give this man a job, he says. Give this
1: man a job, got a job. My father, he sang songs that you never hear of today. And he used to sing a song, you'll never miss the water till the well runs dry, which is a very true saying, isn't it?
2: Here are people who live in an almost kind of hermetic and very innocent lifestyle. They're minding their own business on a farm on the Scottish coast, and along comes... Darth Vader, if you will, who's going to rip the whole thing down and displace all them. And they seem like incredibly, incredibly innocent people. Did they strike you that way, that they just wanted to be left alone and go about their business?
3: Absolutely. I mean, when I first spoke to the people there, um, I said to them, look, you know, I think that Donald Trump should be held accountable for his actions here. And I want you to give me your trust that I will follow this story and, and hold them to account for this. And all over the world, you know, whether it's in New York or whether it's in Michigan, whether it's in uh, you know Denver or all the places we've shown the film, people have come up to us and they've said, same kind of thing is happening here. You know, uh, yeah, it's not always Donald Trump, but. Often, there is a developer coming in saying, look, we're going to develop this land. We think it's going to be fantastic for the uh, economy. And the local government gets on side, maybe. There's a real—this is striking a chord. Let me just say that Trump is a very
2: mixed bag. If he was a filmmaker, you know, he'd have Waterworld on some of his slate. And he'd uh, have—I'm not going to say Citizen Kane, but he'd have some pretty estimable things. Trump is a very, very complicated person. And I'm wondering— you were around him. How much were you? Because in the film, you doesn't seem like you are in direct, uh, you know, uh, proximity to him all that often. Is that true?
3: Yeah, I mean, the, I went up there the first day I, I, I um, went up to film. Really, was in May when he came over. I heard on the news he was there, so I, I went up and I um, said to the guy on the door of this this um, press conference, "Look, I'm from Montrose Pictures." Look, production company, which I am. And um, I went down and I started filming there. And when I saw Donald Trump standing there saying, we are going to stabilize the dunes and make them better than they were previously. the Scientists had said um, to me, uh, that if you stabilize the dunes, it's the worst possible thing you can do. You know, by stabilizing the dunes, you are taking away the thing that makes them a site of special scientific interest. You know, they've been there for many hundreds of years, moving and shifting. On their own accord. On their own accord. And if you stabilize them to build a golf course then you are changing the landscape forever. And that uniqueness is gone forever. the nature forever. of them, yeah. Yeah, well, you see, you see the thing is with, with Donald Trump, he's used to having media around who are going to give him good press. But I disagree with
2: you. I, I think maybe that's the case over there. What was it about what was going on over there that people bit the Trump hook? Because in America, they don't do that anymore. Trump is someone who is viewed with as much skepticism as he is with fascination. Who
3: didn't say no, and why didn't they say no? Well, first of all, the local government said no, and the Scottish government called in the decision overruling the local government. Why do you think? Their argument was that this is in the Scottish national interest, that this is going to create so many jobs. They said, look, this is going to put Scotland on the map for golf, even though, as we all know, Scotland is stuffed full of golf courses. (laughs) Anyway, It's where golf was founded, you know, at St. Andrews. And it's baffling to me, I have to say, Alec. Yeah. I don't understand it myself. You know, I mean, at the end was of the day— Was there
2: someone who you could point to who was ultimately responsible for that decision well, on the national level?
3: Well, the first minister of Scotland, Alex Salmond, refused to do an interview with us. But essentially, he was the one— Who rubber-stamped who, this. Absolutely. Right. And now, of course, we've got this extraordinary situation where— um, Donald Trump is furious about a wind farm which is being planned off the coast. Yes. He's saying that if the wind farm is built... He's out. He's
2: out. Who's going to make that decision?
3: That's down to the Scottish government, to Alex Salmond. But you see, Mr. Salmond has, uh, so far, there's been a a, a wall of silence after Donald Trump wrote uh, a couple of letters to the first minister, furious letters, saying, you promised me this wind farm wouldn't be built. Did they? Um, Well, the Scottish government's line at the moment is that was the previous administration. And I actually, you know, the the thing is, is that this golf course development was given the go ahead by... Uh, Mr. Salmon, who said we're giving this the go-ahead because we believe the idea that is going to bring all these jobs. We understand there is going to be a serious environmental impact, but sometimes as a government you have to make tough decisions. How did he address the concerns about the environment? Well, He he just ignored them. He basically acknowledged there would be an environmental impact, but he said that the economic developments. The economic gain outweighed the environmental concerns. In the film, you see that the
2: bulldozers have torn into the whole thing. The whole thing is completely lacerated.
3: And it looks like a golf course because the destruction, as you you say, has been done. But what hasn't happened yet... Is the skyscraper hotel and the fifteen hundred houses and all the facilities? Well, let's see. He doesn't get the skyscraper out. hotel and he doesn't get the condos. Are they? They're going to still have a, a golf operation there. They're going to have a couple of temporary buildings, but now he's saying that work on the rest of it is on hold until there's a wind farm decision. What's the status of the wind farm decision? Well, we're waiting for a decision from the Scottish government on that, and you know that remains to be seen. But. Donald Trump is a developer. That's what he does. He builds skyscrapers. He builds uh, resorts. The Scottish government said, in this case, look, you know, we understand there's this big environmental impact, but the economics outweigh that. And I think that question has to be put to the Scottish government. The Scottish government at the moment is fighting uh, to have Scotland as a fully independent country. There's going to be a referendum in 2014 for true Scottish independence, where Scotland would be completely separate to the rest of the the United Kingdom. What's the public support for that? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I, I don't know what the latest surveys are on that. But if you are going to have a government which overturns its own strict environmental policies in order to give a developer the green light to build a golf course resort and a skyscraper hotel and 1,500 houses on one of its last wilderness areas, then you have to ask yourself the question, you know, how will the Scottish government be behaving in the future? Right. You know, this was an opportunity in a way for Scotland to stand up and say, look, you know, we have here a prized part of our country, which is beautiful. It's one of our last wilderness areas. We could stand up now and say, look, we know there is this development proposal to come in from uh, Donald Trump to build this resort. It's going to bring uh, a few jobs, although the, the economists who we have in the film say the number of jobs will be closer to zero. You know, they had an opportunity to stand up for the environment. The Scottish government had that opportunity and it, it, and it refused to take it. For the future of Scotland, I think that sends out huge alarm bells. If you have a fully independent Scotland, then it's going to allow that kind of thing to happen again.
2: But I'm wondering, when you make films like this, which involve these causes, what does this do to you in the long-term meaning? The golf course is there. The damage is done to the scenic beauty. Do you feel any compulsion to participate in this process now beyond you having cut the camera, or do you just walk away from it now and you're not really engaged by what's going on? No,
3: there? I think it really does get under you your You still skin. care. I think the thing is is that the story doesn't really leave you. I think, in a way, this, as you say, the golf course is there, it could be reclaimed in hundreds of years. In fact, there's a, a Scottish singer-songwriter called Kareem Polwart who's written a, a song inspired by the film where the um, the sea fog in Scotland, which is called The Ha, reaps its quiet vengeance on the resort. and that eventually it is reclaimed by nature.
0: The tide still ebbs and flows Where the eithen meets the ocean And not even God himself Could stop the northerlies from blowing You can tear these dunes asunder Pound this wonder into dust With your cruel hands and crooked hearts lost an expense of lies but the heart will stumble in to cover your eyes.
3: How did you raise the money for You've Been Trumped? Where'd the money come from? So we didn't have any money. The, the way it works now for filmmakers is you go to a pitching forum often and you say, look, I've got this idea for this film I think is an important story. You make a trailer, you fund that yourself. You then stand in front of a load of executives um, from around the world and you tell them why you think this story is really important as a documentary. And they then decide whether or not they're going to fund it or not. And so I pitched this film at the Edinburgh International Film Festival and we were voted essentially the best pitch. However, one of the executives from PBS actually said to me, I hope you've got a good lawyer um, because if you're going to take on Donald Trump, you're going to need one. And there was no money forthcoming from that pitching session. So I had to remortgage the house and we hit the internet and crowdfunded. This, This is how many documentary filmmakers are making films now. They... Hit a, a, a website like Indiegogo or Kickstarter, they make a trailer, and they ask people to contribute money. I mean, so you're, you're
2: in like the land of Robert Townsend and Hollywood Shuffle, where you're putting it on your own credit card and bar. You're just, you're just doing whatever you can. It's the only way you can do it. What was the budget of the film, finally? Yeah, you know, I'm terribly British when it comes to things like this. I hate talking about money. I'm asking because I think people find this interesting. Meaning, a guy yeah. on his own found a way to cobble together X. Would you say it was north of five hundred thousand dollars? Oh gosh, way south of
3: that. I mean, it, it was way you know, south of that. Oh, yes. okay, that, that's, oh yeah. Okay, that's I just I mean, I'd say, I'd say, in a way, to be honest with you, Alec, if you have a camera and you have memory cards or tapes to put into the camera, you're really talking about your time. And the location was a drive away from your exactly. home. Exactly. So I was able to drive up there, and that's really what was so important to me. I mean, the, you know, and that's what documentary filmmaking for me is all about, trying to get to the truth of something. You find, well, is this real life? Is this really unfolding? And sometimes, you know, real, yeah. real life is stranger than fiction, yeah. and this is, this is a, a classic example of that. I don't think your film is finished. Well, I a don't way, think it's finished. Or there's a part
2: deux that you can go. there is, a, you there can is a
3: part two. I, I think the thing is, what we found is that, uh, for example, we've been showing the film in Croatia recently, and we showed it in the town of Dubrovnik, which is under threat from you know an alleged Israeli arms dealer who's building this golf course, wants to build a golf course resort overlooking the town of Dubrovnik, which is a UNESCO-protected site. And the local villagers put the film on, to try and bring home to people this is what the future could hold for us if we allow this kind of thing to happen. I mean, in in Croatia, the government is supporting the building of 100 golf resorts. You know, in a way, the film where we've been screening it in America, there are people who come up to us and they say, you know, there's a, a similar kind of development being planned for here. And so you're right, it isn't over. What are you working on now? Well, at the moment, I'm working on trying to get the film out to an audience. We think that this story is one that has to be told. It's one that resonates with people here in America. But we we're really don't struggling. have distribution. No, we don't have what, distribution. Well, let me ask you,
2: why do you think you don't have distribution? Do you think that some people are overlooked the film, if you were in the, in the distribution world? Because what's new about spitting on Trump?
3: Well, I think our film shows Donald Trump as you've never seen him before. How so? I mean, because here you see him bullying and harassing local people and developing a, a unique wilderness area and destroying an environment.
2: See, I happen to be a very truthful person. His property is terribly maintained. It's slum-like. It's disgusting. He's got stuff thrown all over the place. He lives like a pig. And I did say that, and I'm an honest guy and I speak honestly, and I think that's why some people like me and some people probably don't like me. But I think he'd do himself a great service if he fixed up his property. You do well, show it on camera. There's a thing that Trump does, which is the thing I love most about the film. And there is, is Trump condemning these people and marginalizing these innocent people, these completely innocent people.
3: We were surprised ourselves, I think, about the impact it would have on audiences. But people in theaters, when they see it, it's got a tremendous power, I think, yeah. because people feel very strongly about what's happened and they feel very strongly for these people and for the environment.
2: Donald Trump's golf course in Aberdeen, Scotland opened last month. Plans to build the hotel are on hold pending a decision by the Scottish government to allow a wind farm to be built within view of the course. You've been trumped is playing at the Village East Cinema in New York. It opens in Los Angeles on August 17th. My next guest, Dylan Avery, was an 18-year-old film student in upstate New York when he came up with an idea for a summer action movie about a vast 9-11 conspiracy. While working as a waiter at Red Lobster... Avery combed through hundreds of hours of eyewitness accounts, news footage, and official reports from 9-11. His fictional script gradually dissolved into an obsessively researched documentary called Loose Change, which alleged that 9-11 really was an inside job.
4: Here's a clip. A Boeing 757 is 155 feet long, 44 feet high, has a 124 foot wingspan, weighs almost 100 tons. Are we supposed to believe that it disappeared into this hole without leaving any wreckage on the outside? Why is there no damage from where the wings or the vertical stabilizer or the engines would have slammed into the building?
2: Avery's film became an online sensation. After being posted on the Internet, loose change spawned a truther movement composed of people that believed the government orchestrated 9-11 and then covered it up. And, as with all conspiracy theories, talking about them in public can get you into trouble. That
4: hasn't stopped Dylan Avery. The 9-11 Commission was a cover-up, and the only question is what it was covering up.
2: What do you think it was covering up?
4: Easily the the complete abundance of warnings that it appeared the government received when you have john ashcroft flying private jets in july 2001 when you have massive put options placed on american united airlines leading up to the events that is suspicious to say the least but when you take those facts i mean because this is a game obviously i shouldn't say game
2: but this is an exercise that a lot of people have toyed with one thing you do say in the film, which is the one I can't let go of, is the destruction of the entire Rolls Royce engine
4: system and the entire fuselage of the plane that goes into the Pentagon. Shanksville is is more glaring than the Pentagon because with well, the Penny, Pentagon. Tell me why. You- I mean, I've seen news footage taken immediately after. I've seen photographs taken that day, days after the fact, and there is just nothing there. There's a hole in the ground. There's no fuselage. There's no engine. There's no tail. There's no. What did the nine eleven commission say about that? They simply said that the plane crashed going at a very high rate of speed. There are websites dedicated specifically to airplane crashes and to the debris left over. And you can go to any uh, jumbo jet crash uh, ever, and you will see something, some kind of trace. I mean, the eyewitnesses that showed up to the site said themselves, "Uh, I didn't even know if I was in the right place. I didn't see a plane. What happened to the people that were on the plane? That plane took off. What have people
2: postulated to you has happened. Oh man, there's that makes sense to you?
4: There's a lot of theories out there, but I, and that's the one thing that I've tried to avoid talking about over the past couple of years is theories, because it's just dangerous territory. When You start talking about things that may or may not have happened. But to the extent without endorsing or even discussing any theory, are there any that address that, for example, that have made any sense to you at all? I mean, there's all kinds, that the the four original planes were herded to an Air Force base and then the passengers, because all four of the planes on the morning of 9-11 averaged about, 25 to 30% capacity. Right. I don't know how often you fly, Alec, but even back in 2001 on a weekday morning, it was hard to get four planes that empty. One of the theories is that the four planes were shepherded to an Air Force base, the people were taken off of that plane, put onto a fifth plane, and then that plane shot down. Again, just a theory. I'm not saying that's what I believe, but... But let me just finish this. good. We could go on and on. and You can take all the, the, the truth
2: movement and you can take all that information and set it aside because what's daunting is you never will know so we go down there now and what do we have what do you think about what's been what's happening at the site of the world trade center now
4: at the site itself yeah uh it would be nice for everything to have been built and for there not to have been this long drawn-out battle over the memorial it would have been nice for the 10-year anniversary for everything to have been I don't want to say back to normal um, because, you know, how are things ever going to get back to normal in this country? It just it seemed like something wasn't complete. Um, It was a very surreal day for me because, you know, it's 10 years after the fact. You know, a lot has happened in the past decade. A lot has happened with the movement, with the country. I mean, Ground Zero was a madhouse. It was just a maze. You know, we all felt like we were just kind of being corralled through these gates and fences and eventually made our way to uh, the free speech zone <laughs> where the truth movement was uh, assembled, essentially. When you say, quote unquote, the truth movement was assembled, is it a
2: disparate bunch of people from different distinct groups who it's, are under that umbrella?
4: You know, it's tricky. I, I suppose it is a giant umbrella at this point because, you know, when you, you tell somebody you want the truth about 9-11, they they probably already have many preconceived notions about what it is you're asking just because they've seen so many different aspects of this movement over the past decade uh there's
2: a lot of it propelled by your film
4: a, a good percentage of it yeah was yeah, kind of the
2: gone with the wind of the truth movement
4: yeah and you know uh unintentionally so you know it, it was yeah, never never, right. yeah it was I no, it in, was never a goal of yours yeah right? it was just hey let's make this movie to express these well, things I want to get that
2: but I want to say but you say so you're there
4: oh yeah hung out. are I you treated like a deity among those people do they kind of think you're you know, I actually, I don't like being idolized, and I don't like being put up on a pedestal right. and having attention drawn to you. Yeah, because that's just I'm just a filmmaker. That's all. That's all it's ever come from. So, when when you first get into this, and when you first kind of start to open your eyes to this information, it's very easy to get sucked in, right. and it, it's very easy to feel overwhelmed and like uh, almost anything could be true, more or less, but you have to kind of reach that point where you take a step back and you right. start to analyze things and just like, all right, well, what, what's good for the movement, you know, what's good for the cause and what are the things that truly matter? Well, you just said the movement. Do you believe
2: that you're a filmmaker who's making films and you're pointing and you're casting a light on what you think is a set of facts?
4: Or do you think you're part of a movement or both or neither? Which is it? Primarily, I'm a filmmaker. Right. And that's, that's the whole reason Loose Change exists. But and that, Am I
2: wrong to assume that you've kind of gotten out of the movement business the last couple of years? That's...
4: Well, it's, it's tough to say. I mean, because I'm still involved. I was still there at Ground Zero on the 10th anniversary. I still talk to all the people that are active in the movement. Why? Why did you go? I went mostly to pay my respects and to see how construction had come along and also to see the people that I hadn't seen since 2006, 2007. Something you cared about. Yeah, this is a movement and these are people that I care about and that I know, you know, and I, I went down to ground zero mostly just to be there. So tell us, how does loose change begin? Um, the original loose change feature film script was ambitious. If I had to pick one work, it had car chases, it had people assembling at the White House on the end, it had this, it had that. I did, I I wrote a script without any care to budget or how I would actually film it. So when the time came around to actually start and plan out this film, this, the thing that I had spent a year, two years writing, it was kind of a slow realization that the film that I wanted to make was not possible so it was, especially after Corey came back, my best friend, Corey, who uh, signed up to the army and... Uh, and he signed up like, after 9-11? He signed up before. Oh, okay. His, his first day of basic yeah, training was on September 11th wow. because he signed up in August 2001. It was kind of a running joke at the time. It was like, well, you know, we're, we're not in a war. There's not going to be a war anytime right, soon, right, right, so right. we don't have to worry about you. Boom. You know, it'll be fine. And then the timing couldn't have been creepier. Um, so I would send him dvds of the movie as it was sent over up, to iraq over to iraq yeah so while he was over in iraq fighting the iraq war um so while your best friend was over in iraq fighting the
2: iraq war you were sending him the basic elements of your 9-11 conspiracy
4: theory film well, no, yeah, I don't... I'm hesitant to use conspiracy theory, but oh, yes. whatever. True, yeah, true. yeah but whatever you want to call no, it. Yeah. No, no,
2: but I, I would prefer to at least have some common language with you. What's the phrase you would rather use?
4: I I suppose a 9-11 truth film. Fine.
2: Cool. You're sending your friend the elements, the raw elements of your 9-11 truth film.
4: While he's fighting a war that is founded upon the events of 9-11, essentially. So, yeah, it's it was a very interesting time to be alive. And then he comes back, and what happened? So when he got back, we tried shooting a couple scenes, and... You know, in in hindsight, for like my first time directing with a little mini DV camera and no experience whatsoever, I mean, some of the scenes didn't turn out too bad. But it became apparent after I started cutting it together or attempting to cut it together, I realized the film just wasn't going to happen. Not the way that I envisioned it. When you cross the line from the narrative film to the documentary film, were the facts similar the the facts were definitely similar in a lot of the basic premises but the really interesting thing about it is that the loose change screenplay predicated the actual events of what happened after loose change occurred or after loose change went viral because in this script these three characters see these problems with the official story and with what their government is doing and slowly take steps to educate the public and then those steps go essentially viral around the world and suddenly they're held up to be this thing that they uh, wanted to accomplish, but didn't expect the actual the whole world to actually listen to them. So it was very interesting when Loose Change, the documentary, was released, and it went viral around the world and back and gave people some confidence to question the official story.
2: And the popularity of the war was waning as well.
4: And the popularity of the war was waning, so you not only had this increased flow of information about 9-11 and what had happened, but you also had this increased distrust of the government, and you had this climate where it seemed like almost anything was possible possible so it for a lot of people it's a big leap though don't you think a little bit yeah but I mean, do,
2: you, do you see that leap now differently than you did back then that, that's a bit of a leap
4: well to some people it may be but then you you look back you look at the the pretenses that have been used for war and things like the Gulf of Tonkin while although 3,000 people were not killed in broad daylight in the Gulf of Tonkin incident you see these events which later turn out to not be everything they were cracked up to be
2: what was this like for you in terms of your own personal life? What was the cost for you of doing this where you were saying in the middle of a war,
4: the government's fingerprints are on this potentially? The cost wasn't terribly drastic. I didn't I, I had a couple of friends that while they didn't necessarily distance themselves or disappear from my life entirely, they certainly didn't agree with it. What about their parents? Uh parents, not a lot of interaction. I didn't really yeah. interact a lot with my friends, parents on the topic. Because again, I I was aware that it was a very... What about uh, your own family? My mom, a supporter from day one. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm her shining star and she will do anything to support me. Uh, My father... Mm, no idea. He's not really been in my life. So, um, my grandmother, a staunch Bush-voting Republican, uh, thought it would be better if I focused on my cartooning as opposed to <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to my filmmaking. So, uh, I. See. Any conversations with her about that? They're they're brief, but it's I mean, and she's she saw like early early editions of it. You're making a movie now. I'm working on a couple of things. I'm wrapping up a short film. I have a couple. You made of scripts a short numbers. film. A film about what? Uh, it's about a guy who wakes up in a hotel room, uh, has no recollection of how he got there, he's dressed in a three-piece suit, there's a gun on the bedside table, he gets a call on his cell phone, and before he knows it, he's beating someone to death. And of course, immediately realizes what he's doing and stops. Um, it's called Olsen, and it's it has shades of some real events that happened back in the 50s, but the script has become its own entity now. You're so, making a film about coffee? Uh, that, that, uh, I made that last year. Uh, that was a documentary I made when I was living down in Ocean Beach. What's that film called? Uh, Buzzkill. And that, that was just pretty much a fun project that me and Wes Davis, my buddy, made. Um, What's it about? My, my buddy Wes goes 21 days without drinking coffee. I know. We, we, I go from 9-11 to no coffee. Um, but it was just a fun project. Like, he, we were hanging out at a buddy's house, and he mentioned it, and it sounded fun. Did you feel
2: that you needed that, though? Because, like, in my work, if I find that's necessary, you can go from doing King Lear, and the next thing you want to do is, like, the Sunshine Boys or something.
4: Yeah, like, it was nice. It was nice to do a documentary and to go into somewhere and be like take a be, break. Yeah, to take a break. Do you find that sometimes it was suffocating?
2: It was suffocating
4: you. Oh, yeah, even to this day. I, I sure. still I still can't get jobs because people are like, oh, I want to direct a feature film. And I was like, okay what didn't you make that nine eleven documentary no thanks it's it's tricky because lose change happened because I wanted to make a film it, it came it was born out of the passion of being a filmmaker and then lose change took over my life and now it's almost like like a like filmmaking is completely out of the equation now but do you feel for you personally that's one of
2: the greatest impacts of nine eleven? the loss for you of you as a filmmaker.
4: Well, that's exactly it. I get compliments on the film and how it's made, but no one's ever like, here's some money. Let's make something. You know, no one, make... or has it been some? No. I, 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 all I've ever had is really just broken promises and phones that don't get answered. And I've tried and I've tried and I've tried reaching out. Who funded out. the coffee film? Uh, <laughs> what funding? <Okay. laughs> I mean, it was it was the cost of gas so and food. F- so do you find
2: that's the kind of movie you're forced to make now is you have to do films that are very, very...
4: Yeah. I mean, even my short, I mean, I just, it's been like a couple hundred bucks and that's mostly just food and, you know, taking care of everybody, which is fine. I mean, everybody has to get their start doing that. But to, to be at this place where I have, I mean, Vanity Fair called it the first internet blockbuster. You really don't get much more of a glaring review than that, at least at the time. I mean, the Vanity Fair article in 2006 came at such a great time and it was such a positive piece. Have you wanted to Adult Dalton, Trumbo. Have you ever had anybody that was willing
2: to hire you and you just didn't put your name on the film and you used a different name?
4: Nope, not even that. You wouldn't even.
2: No, you know, no I have And you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't
4: accept I, that. I don't know at this point. <laughs> I mean, it depends on the paycheck. What do you love about making film? You're creating these little universes, and you know you're you're inviting people into them for an hour or two at a time, and you had this you had this legitimate opportunity to, to to take people away for an hour or two and to just suck them out of whatever's going on in their life and you're you're giving them escape you're giving them a vacation for an hour or two and directing right now is like in a a, a superpower to me that I'm slowly working my way up to because it's just like when you can get on a set and when you can get these performances out of these people that just go down in history I mean that's that's art right there who are some filmmakers that you admire Uh, uh I hate to be cliche but Kubrick yeah. i mean stanley kubrick i mean that that man commanded such power with his films and he had most powerful I, he had such a way with what he did yeah. just the way his films came together and the way he approached it but also uh maybe kind of a minor point for some people but his penchant for natural lighting
2: i mean yeah kubrick to me was someone who was uh, who who occupied his own zip code so to speak in terms of films in terms of a tone and a mood and It doesn't surprise me that Kubrick is your favorite director, one of your favorite directors, because Kubrick to me is the ultimate truther filmmaker. Hmm. His films are disturbingly truthful, the way people behave, what they do, the nakedness of their ambitions and their intentions. Yeah. If loose change hadn't gone in the direction it went, if it hadn't put you where you are now, what do you think you'd be doing right now?
4: That's a very good question. Maybe I would be directing feature films. You know, Maybe I would have a career. Uh, maybe I would have all the things that I dream of right now. Or maybe I wouldn't. Uh, maybe I would still be in Oneana trying to figure my life out and trying to figure out how to break through. It's tough to say. It really is. Um, I do have those moments uh, a lot where I think about what if.
2: Dylan Avery still lives in Los Angeles, writing scripts and working toward his dream of directing feature films. Loose Change is still available on the Internet as well as Netflix. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
1: Right Rug Flooring. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary, stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybrezza.com.